as a church, we've been walking through the gospel of John. John was an eyewitness of the things that he saw, the things that he's writing about. He was there to watch these things unfold. And it's such a joy to get to come toward the conclusion of our study of John's gospel and see this, which is the, the ultimate, the high point, the climactic moment in all the gospel accounts is Easter Sunday. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, the stone is rolled away. Uh, you know, you, you sum up the whole of the Christian faith really effectively by just quoting six words, two sentences. It is finished, which we talked about last Sunday and we celebrated on Good Friday and he is risen. That, that really gets the, the lion's share of what Christian faith is all about. It is finished. Jesus died for us. He atoned for our sins. He covers our guilt and our shame when we put our trust in him and what he's done for us at the cross. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. The tomb is empty forever. He's risen and he gives new life to all who follow him. That's the hope that we celebrate today. We have an undying hope because we have a living Savior. So we're going to look at John chapter 20 in just, in just a moment. Um, but, but let me say this. So the, the beautiful thing about the Easter message, central as it is to Christian faith, is the message of Easter is suited to every person on planet Earth. Maybe some of you, you woke up this morning Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you woke up, you went outside, uh, and you announced to all your neighbors, Jesus is risen. You came inside, you started dying eggs, right? You were, you were ready to go first thing this morning, hope brimming in your heart. Not everybody's there, right? Maybe not all of us who are watching or all of us who are even here uh, are in that place. Here, here's the beautiful thing, and we'll come to it momentarily and really dig into it. But um, Jesus isn't put off by tired people. He's not put off by doubting, doubtful people, fearful people, hopeless people. He, he pulls in close. He pulls up a chair here in John chapter 20, and he's going to deliver, hand deliver, I trust, by God's grace. He's going to hand deliver hope to us. We're going to see that in a minute when we look at this glorious text in God's word. And I just want to tell you something about Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you're watching and you're unfamiliar. Maybe you're not read the Bible or read much of the gospel accounts about Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something about Jesus that you learn when you read the gospels, when you read the Bible. And, and it's proven true for me for about 40 years of walking with Jesus is Jesus isn't hiding from anybody today. He's, he's out and around. He is on the streets. He is moving in. He is, he is closing the distance. That's what he wants to do. He's out and available for the having Today, this fine Easter Sunday morning, Jesus wants to be known. He wants to make himself real to people who are watching. As we look at his word, he wants to engage our hearts. He wants to, he wants to convince us that he's God, that he's real, that he has the power to make all things new, that no matter how far we've walked away from him, he can close the distance today. I pray that that's what happens as we experience him in his word. So I've got four observations for us from our text. And the first observation I want to give us before we even read the passage, and it's going to appear on the screen. We're going to have a few points just so you can track along a few points that are going to appear on the screen. The first observation is this. This story connects with people who have doubts. This story connects with people who have 
doubt. So this is the story of doubting Thomas. This is an apostle who comes into our text with doubts in his heart. We're going to start reading in verse 24 in just a second. But what's so striking when you read all the gospel accounts is nobody walks into John chapter 20 expecting a resurrection. You notice that if you start reading at the very beginning of chapter 20, they're, they're coming with burial oils and spices. They're, they're not singing Christ the Lord is risen today on their way to the tomb. Mary Magdalene, she sees the stone rolled away and she's not, she's not thinking, awesome. He did exactly what he said he would do. He, Mary Magdalene sees the stone was rolled away and she concludes someone moved the body. She instantly starts to be frantic that someone stole the body of her teacher, her rabbi, her, her savior. So there's that built-in conclusion of immediate doubt, but then everything changes right before our text. In chapter 20, verse 19, the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples physically. It's not an apparition. It's not a ghost. He is, he is there. They see him there. He's eating at the beach. You can read this in other uh, gospel accounts and everybody who's there that day believes the problem is not everybody's there and Thomas is one of the ones who wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday when Jesus appeared to his disciples and that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 20 so if you'd follow it's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible we'll have the text on the screen for you here's what God's word says but Thomas called twin one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. So he's here this time. Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. So the title of of the message is Famous Last Words. A fascinating book came out. Some of you might be aware of this back in 2012, entitled Last Words of Notable People. It's a big, thick, 700-page book that gives you the last sayings and last comments and remarks of 3,500 historically noteworthy people across the centuries. Some of the stories and the last words are really touching. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories that many of us are familiar with, Uh, His was touching. He was 71 years old. He was in his garden working with his wife. And he turns to her and he says, you are wonderful. And then he clutches his chest and he dies. So there's these beautiful stories in there. But then there's also ones that are kind of ironic, stories that are ironic, like Nostradamus, who told his friends, he said, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. Maybe the one prediction that he got right. He might have said it every night to a different friend. But in any case, he was right on that one particular occasion. When the sun came up the next day, he was no longer there. Another ironic one would be Pistol Pete Maravich, the great basketball uh, legend. And his last words on this earth were, I feel great. And he said that at the beginning of his final 
pickup game of basketball. I feel great. Famous last words. Some of them were uh, humorous. So there was a 17th century French composer named, named Rameau. He was, he was dying and he was on his deathbed and the priest came to say the last rites and the priest began to sing a hymn to this famous musical composer and Rameau spent his very last five words on earth saying, you are out of tune. Another one, would, <laughs> which is kind of darkly uh, dark humor, is, is a man who was, uh, stood before a firing line. He was a, he was a notorious criminal. He stood before a firing line in the early 1900s, and they asked him if he had any final requests. And his last words were, bring me a bulletproof vest. His last words on earth, right? Famous last words. But sometimes we use that phrase, famous last words, not to just describe the literal last thing that's spoken by someone before they die. But a lot of times we use that phrase to capture a, a resolve that one makes verbally that ends up being reversed. So my sister, for example, here's a small one. My sister Lori told my mom when my sister was in college, she said, I'll never marry a pastor. Famous last words. It was a resolution, but it ended up being reversed. Here in John chapter 20, we've got some famous last words, and it's, it's this. The famous last words are from Thomas when he says, I will never believe. I will never believe, which was true until eight days later when he encounters the risen Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Famous last words. What's, you know, what's John's gospel have to do with you and me? Right here, right now, where we're sitting, what does John's gospel have to do with us? John wrote this gospel so that you would believe. John's goal is that people would read what he's written, his eyewitness accounts, and would find life, would believe and find life in Jesus Christ. It is a very personally written document, a, a historical account that is targeted to get you and me to see Jesus is compelling. Jesus is Savior, he's Lord, he's King, He's risen from the dead, and we find life in him. Here's what John says at the end of his gospel. John, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John isn't writing the words that we've read here, and he's not writing the 21 chapters that comprise his gospel uh, so that we can impress other people with our knowledge of first century life in the ancient world that centers around Jesus of Nazareth. That's not the purpose. He's, John wants you and me to find life today in Jesus Christ, to find life with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who lived a perfect life died on the cross to cover our sins, to make it possible for us to be right with God, and then rose again from the dead. In other words, let me just put it this way. John's gospel is a 15,600 plus word persuasion paper. He wants, and the stakes are high. Look, the stakes are life and death. To follow Jesus is to find life. And since life is only in Jesus, outside of him there can only be death. So the stakes are super high. But he's calling us to believe. Here's another observation. Number two. This story, story of Easter, 
explains the explosive spread of Christianity. This story explains the expro- explosive growth and spread of Christianity. The, the story of Christianity makes no sense unless Jesus rose from the dead. If John 20 is fiction, we've got to come up with a way to account for what actually happened in history in the first century with regard to the explosive expansion of the Christian faith. You know, skeptics like to sometimes offer the idea that the apostles just made this stuff up. You know, they walked with Jesus for three years and then they saw him die and they didn't want the ride to end. So they would do anything to keep the movement alive and to kind of ride out the wave, including lying about what actually happened uh, in the termination of Jesus and the aftermath of his death. So in that way of thinking, instead of these 11 apostles after Judas left, 11 apostles, instead of just kind of saying their goodbyes, hey guys, it was a great ride for the last three years and signing each other's yearbooks and so forth. Instead of that, somebody, it's purported, huddled all, all these guys up and, and came up with a master plan that went something like this. I know we're all sad that our Lord is not with us anymore and it's been a lot of fun, but what if we kept it going? So just go with me here for a second. What if we kept it going? First, we're gonna have to steal the body right? We're, we're not going to convince anybody that Jesus rose from the dead if his remains are still in that, that tomb. So the Roman guards, that's going to be an issue. We're going to have to figure out how to get around that. We're going to have to get around that massive stone that's been placed in front of the tomb. Stealing corpses, by the way, is a capital offense, but let's risk it for the sake of, you know, keeping this thing moving along. If, but here's the thing. Here's the exciting part. If we don't get caught and killed for doing this, here's what happens next is we're going to have to find some place to put the body. And then we'll wait it out for several weeks. And then the Feast of Pentecost will come. Thousands of people will come flooding into Jerusalem. Thousands of worshipers will gather in Jerusalem. And then we'll all, all 11 of us, will go out into the streets. We'll grab bullhorns. And right there in the temple precinct, the very area where, where the mobs demanded that Jesus be crucified for claiming to be God, we'll claim that Jesus is God. We'll tell the people, you need to repent and and say you're sorry and acknowledge that this Jesus is actually Lord of the universe. And we'll tell the people right there in the town square, we saw Jesus alive three days after he was crucified. After which time the leaders who put Jesus to death will then come looking for us. And eventually we'll all die preaching a resurrection of a rabbi that we have buried in some undisclosed location. Right, that, who's signing up for that? that? That doesn't make any sense of what happened historically with the growth and spread of Christianity. Who wants to die a brutal death for proclaiming a message you made up? Right, I've, I've bought gad gifts for family members. I've never bought one that cost that much. I mean, nobody's willing to risk that much for a hoax that they wanted to Uh, bring upon the world there's another option the other option is much more simple they saw Jesus alive uh, rather they saw Jesus crucified they saw him dead and buried and then they saw him risen again in the flesh right there with him that would explain everything the disciples saw Jesus alive after he was dead and buried John 20 really happened if John 20 really happened that explains everything explains the absence of a body 
even though there was every motivation for the Roman guards to find it, every motivation for the Jewish officials to find it. There was absence of the body. It explains the story of Christianity, one unfolded. It explains the boldness of the disciples, even unto death and martyrdom. It explains all of that. But, but I don't think that John 20 is just for the sake of uh, Christian apologetics. John 20 is not here j- just to amass arguments that lend plausibility to the, the miraculous claims of Christian faith. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. We also see number three. This story shows the heart of Jesus. This story shows the heart of Jesus. Again, I said it earlier. I'm going to say it again here. Jesus isn't put off by our questions, our doubts, and our fears. Some, everybody's different, right? Some, some people find believing things that are hard to believe. They find believing those things pretty easy, right? Maybe an illustration is some of you, some of you turn on reality TV and you just love it. You, you're watching that show, that reality TV show, and you're just enjoying it. And you get aggravated when somebody else is in the room and that person in the room is watching the reality show and they say, this whole thing is staged. I just want you to know, that guy's not really blowing up at her. This is, they've tried, this is the third take and that ended up being the best take, right? There's some of you who, if, if that's what somebody does in the room, you're like, hey, get out of here, right? Just, I'm trying to enjoy the show. My own family, they, they get on my case because I'm that guy, right? I, I, I process my criticism of TV shows out loud, and then my kids end up using a phrase that I've used in parenting a thousand times, and they use that phrase against me. And the phrase is process internally. They want to enjoy the show. They don't want to hear all my critiques about it, right? Well, people have different uh, thresholds of doubt and belief and skepticism. So you just take three examples that emerge in John chapter 20. If you read earlier in John chapter 20, John, the author of this gospel, he sees the grave clothes in the tomb in verses 7 and 8, and he immediately believes. That was his threshold because he concludes, if if you were stealing a body, a capital offense in the Roman Empire, you're not going to stop and unwrap the linen garments the body, and then then take time to do laundry. You're not going to take time to actually fold these things and stick them there neatly before before you run off with the body. So for John, that was like, he must be risen. Mary Magdalene, it's different. It's not that, right? She hears his name. They had such a familiar relationship. Jesus walked so closely with a small group of people that when when she hears him say her name, Mary, she turns instantly and says, Rabboni, teacher. She knows that voice and she instantly recognizes it's Jesus. Thomas has a different threshold for belief. Thomas isn't having any of it. He wasn't there on Easter morning when Jesus appeared to all of his closest friends. These are his trusted friends and they are not joking around when they tell him, Thomas, we promise you, we all saw him. This was a collective thing. We were all there. Thomas still isn't having it. And and then Thomas sets up this high threshold. He says, I'm going to have to put my finger on the scars to believe. He's a tough case, you might say. He is a skeptic. He is not coming out of his unbelief. He says, I have to touch the nail scars and feel the place where the spear went in. Otherwise, I will never believe. 
you know, the, the humility of Jesus is so striking in this text. The patience of Jesus, right? Here's Jesus. He's given everything. He has laid it all out. He has died on the cross. He told his disciples in advance that he would suffer and be killed and would rise again on the third day. He told them all that. Then he appears to his disciples on Easter morning. It's, it's not Jesus' fault that Thomas skipped church. It's not Jesus' fault that Thomas missed the first Easter sunrise service in all of history. Jesus was there for the seeing. Thomas, you just weren't here. And, and yet, how patient Jesus is. You know, if I were Jesus, I wouldn't come in gently like Jesus comes in. I would, I would Jedi force blast the door off his hinges. I would come inside and say, where's Thomas? Right? Hey, hey Thomas. What part of Luke 18 did you not understand? What part of when I said that destroy this temple and three days later I'll rebuild it? And when I said after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise talking about myself. And I would want to have a confrontational direct moment with Thomas to say, we've known each other for three years been the closest friends. You've seen me work miracles. You've seen me raise the dead. Then I give my life to die for your sins and make you right with God. And then I appear to your brothers and sisters and you come to me with a punch list. You come to me with a, a list of things that have to happen in order for you to believe in me. Can, can you see, friends, the compassion and patience of God? Thomas has doubts and the Savior of the world having been crowned king of the universe and given the name that is above every name, that savior shows up in a room with doubting Thomas and he says, what do you want to see first? The hands? Do you want to touch my hands? Do you want to touch my side? What do you want to do first? He invites Thomas, bring your doubts. It's okay, I'm not put off by that. You come close and you put your hands where you need to put them so that you can believe. Now, I just want to say to everybody who's watching, Today, Jesus will go out of his way to reveal himself to you. He, he loves to come near to people with doubts, people who still have questions, people who have fears. He just keeps moving in on the soul. And he does that in so many different ways. C.S. Lewis, the great apologist who was an atheist before that, he said that God sets traps. He has these fine uh, tools and strategies for pursuing us he called it the mouse's search for the cat and how just bibles would be laid open and c.s lewis would see things and it was it felt like god was closing in on his soul god loves to do that so often people encounter the real jesus by reading the gospels so if you've never read through the gospels that would be a great way just start by just reading through matthew mark luke and john or maybe just start with john and and read it you're going to find by god's grace so many have found this Jesus is compelling. He is magnetic. There's something, the more you read, the more you're like, your heart begins to stir in you and you think, if this guy is real, I want to know him. If he's alive, I want to meet him. Another way that Jesus moves in and closes in on our souls is through bringing us into other into contact with other people. He puts people in our path who have been changed by Jesus Christ. And, and these people, you know them well. And so you can see it's real. 
I know this person. This is an authentic person. The joy this person has, even in difficult circumstances, is real joy. I can't account for it. Maybe it's real. Maybe this Jesus thing is actually true. And, and what's happening when you're seeing that kind of stuff? All the while, Jesus is, is encroaching. Jesus is coming closer and closer, moving in on your soul, moving in on your life. I pray by God's grace that's happening even this morning as we look at his word, that Jesus is closing the distance and coming, revealing himself. This story, it connects with people who have doubts. It explains the explosive spread of Christianity. It shows the heart of Jesus. And fourth, this story shows us a God with scars. Acclaimed uh, Oxford scholar Os Guinness once said, who ever heard of a God with scars. That is the Christian God. That is the story of the gospel. That is the story that is at the center of Christian faith. In so many religions, God is the one who does the wounding. In Christianity, God is wounded so that those who trust him might be healed. That's the story. You go all the way back into the ancient prophecies of Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus shows up on the scene in Bethlehem. And Isaiah says, God speaks through Isaiah and says that he will be wounded for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that will bring us peace with God, that punishment was meted out on the Messiah, on Jesus Christ. If you fast forward and you read the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you see this unfolding scene of worship in heaven. And there are countless millions of people gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ. And what's the thing that they notice? They see him, one, standing, it says, standing yet slain. Which is to say there's this, this deep irony, this tension of both triumph through the resurrection as well as the scarring of him bearing our sins. We worship a God with scars. A movie came out several years ago called The Last Emperor. And in the movie, maybe you've seen it, some of you, a, a child is chosen to be emperor uh, over all of China. And this child just grows up incredibly pampered, surrounded by a thousand eunuchs who are at his beck and call. The moment he says, come, they come, and they're at his service. And eventually, years later, his brother comes to, uh, to visit him and to spend some time with him, the emperor, and the brother just sees the people fawning over him and, and just doing everything, making much to do over, over this boy. And he says, he asks him the question, what happens when you do something wrong? Is that even possible that these people could see you as doing something wrong? What happens in such a scenario? And, and the child says, when, when I do something wrong, the servants get punished. That's how, that's how this goes. And he illustrated it. He takes this vase from the Ming dynasty. It's, it's priceless in worth. And he just throws it on the ground. And it shatters into a thousand pieces. And the moment that he does that, smashes it on the floor, the servants are completely horrified because in just a minute, you can hear one of the servants being beaten to death for the transgression of the king. Christianity is just... The opposite. In Christianity, it's not the servants who are beaten to death for the transgressions of the king. It's the king who's beaten to death for the transgressions 
of the servants. He dies in my place, in your place, in our place. He dies for the sins of the world is what John the Baptist said when he first announced that Messiah was here. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How? By bearing our sins on the cross. This is such good news. No matter how far we've walked away from God, he can reach us through the cross. He can He can redeem us. He can write a new story. He can flip the script if we trust in Jesus Christ. Look, at the end of the day, importance as evidence is for supporting the claims of the Christian faith, what will really change your life is the love of God. That's that's the game changer. That's why the verse, so many around the world, the first verse that people memorize is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes this is how you get in whoever believes on him will have eternal life will not perish will not know judgment will not know death but will know life your your life begins to change the moment you become convinced of this simplest christian truth god loves you Otherwise, there's no explanation for why he would send his son to die for you. He didn't have to do that. He could have just rained down judgment for the things that we've done, the wrong that we've done, the sins we've committed. But the God of the universe, oh, hear me, friend, loves you. He has set it up for you to see this. He has put you in a theater of his glory. He, has, he paints a new sunrise for you every day to show you I'm real. I'm God. I made all this. And it shows us the glory of our God, the majesty of our creator. He is great beyond all description. And that God of glory who spun the planets, who hung lights in the sky for all of us to see, that God has given himself to redeem us from our sin, to save us from our sin. Jesus hangs on the cross in our place so that we could wake up to this reality that the glorious God who made all things and made me loves me and sent his son to save me, to give his life so that I could know him forever. Look, there's a lot that passes for Christianity, especially in our neck of the woods. What's the difference between having a relationship with Jesus that is more of a concept of a relationship with Jesus than an actual transformative saving relationship with Jesus. It's, it's something like this, that the moment I see what my sin did to the Savior Jesus Christ, it creates humility and a spirit of repentance and brokenness before a God who would go to such lengths to save me. That's created in the soul, in the heart. It's authentic. It's felt. It's a gift of God's grace. The moment that I see God's love for me in the cross of Jesus Christ, I drop the punch list and I say, I believe. Tell me which way to go. I'll follow you forever. I repent. I turn from what I was trusting in five minutes ago. You're the new king. You're in charge. I'm following you forever. That's real Christianity. That's the one that changes lives. The real one with real resurrection bound up in it. Real new life bound up 
in it for all who believe. Nobody knows if, if Thomas ever actually put his fingers on the scars of Jesus. John doesn't tell us that, that when Jesus invited him to walk over, that Thomas actually walked over and still put his fingers there. All we know is Jesus invited him to do that, and Thomas didn't think he was bluffing. So Thomas believed. You put this whole story together, what happened? Thomas walks into a room with doubts stacked a mile high, and he says, I will never believe. Famous last words. Eight days later, he sees the risen Jesus, and he says, my Lord and my God. He recognizes who Jesus is. Friend, can I just say to you, your doubts aren't enough to keep Jesus from finding you to keep Jesus from pursuing you. He's not put off by the questions that are still lingering in your heart and mind. He wants to close the distance and he wants to do it now. He wants to find you where you are. Maybe you've actually, maybe you've never said this, but perhaps the core belief of your life, what your life has been saying is, I've not found Jesus to be worthy of my total trust. Not to this point. Maybe as a side thing, you know, but, but he's not worthy of my total trust. Maybe you've never said that with your words, but maybe your life direction has said, Jesus is not worthy of my total trust. My prayer for you leading into this morning and even now, my prayer is those will be famous last words. That you in this moment will put your hope in Jesus Christ, the risen savior of the world. And I'm praying that even now, as I look at you through the screen, even now I pray that a much more personal encounter is happening, that Jesus is breaking all the social distance mandates. He's coming in close and he's saying to you with your name attached, how about now? How about you trust me now? I gave my life for you. I've got you. Put your life in my hands. Will you trust me now? You know, John, Jesus says earlier in John chapter 10, I love these words, because he clarifies the terms. He says, there's somebody in the world and all he wants to do is kill and steal and destroy. And he says, I'm not that guy. Everybody who comes with me gets life. You want life? You're coming with me. Come with me and I'll give you life and that more abundantly. Friend, what better day to say yes to Jesus? <laughs> it's Easter. It's Easter 2020. You'll never forget it, right? 10 years from now, when you're telling somebody the day that your life changed, 20 years, 25, 30 years, you'll remember. It was that Easter Sunday, like the COVID-19 had broken out. We were all in our homes. It was so weird. We were in our PJs singing songs. But that was the day that Jesus became so real to me. And that was the day I surrendered my life to him. Look, maybe you're telling that story 10 years from now and you're saying, Look, I came into that gathering thinking Jesus is okay at best. Famous last words, because now I can't imagine my life without him. I pray that that happens to you this morning. Friend, if that's where, where your heart is, I want to invite you to meet him, to come to Jesus. Jesus comes to us. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I pray that you'll do that even now. The Apostle Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What's that mean? Calls upon his name for what? 
Whoever calls on his name and says, Lord, save me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, come, take my life, take all of me. I want to follow you. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for new life in the empty tomb. So I'm going to lead on the possibility and the hope that there are many watching who are ready to believe. I'm going to lead you in prayer. And if this is in your heart, make these words your own as I lead you in prayer. Would you join with me? Father, thank you that you sent Jesus to die in my place. I know that I have sinned against you. I also know that I can't make it right through my own effort or my best works or my pursuit of religion. Thank you that there is a cross that stands before me and that I can run to you through Jesus. Save me, Lord. Change me forever. Come and give me the hope that you promise in your word to all who believe. Give me life this fine Easter morning. Give me life through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.